0: It is good to be with you this uh, Lord's Day morning and to be able to bring you both the reading and the preaching of the Word. If you would, please, uh, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6. And this morning's message comes to us from verses 4 through 8, but just for the sake of context, uh, we'll begin uh, reading in chapter 5, verse 11, just to remind us of the, uh, the broader stream of thought here as we return to the book of Hebrews after a number of weeks. So we'll begin reading in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, and then we'll read through chapter 6, verse 8. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Hear now the word of God. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if, if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would shine the light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon the sin-darkened corners of our hearts that you would not only illumine those places in our lives that so desperately need your grace, but that you would grant unto us the humility, the desire, and the willingness to submit to your word and to listen to the quiet voice of your correction and rebuke. We pray, O Lord, that you would fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving and joy that we would be overwhelmed with a sense of your mercy and grace to us, we who are undeserving sinners, who have nevertheless been given the grace of adoption, the love of your spirit and son, and the providential care that only a loving father can give to his children. We pray that in all of these things, O Lord, you would draw us closer that you would conform us to the image of your Son, and that you would glorify yourself in our midst. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Among the passages of Scripture uh, in the Bible, we can say that Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, makes perhaps the top 10 list, maybe the top 20 list of some of the most challenging passages to understand Historically, the Reformed tradition has uh, read this particular passage and argued, we could say, in the negative, because when you read this passage, perhaps the initial glance, the initial read, the initial impression is one that, well, it seems as if the author is saying that you can lose your salvation when he says that it is impossible uh, to restore again to repentance Anyone who has tasted the heavenly gifts, who has been enlightened, uh, and who has experienced the power of the age to come. And so the Reformed tradition has said, no, this passage is not teaching that you can somehow lose your salvation, that you can somehow fall away from Christ. Conversely, Arminians or various evangelicals in the broader church have argued in the positive, saying that, yes, that's precisely what this passage is teaching, that you can indeed lose your salvation. You can fall away from Christ. Now, debate aside, misunderstood, I think this passage might indeed instill a great deal of fear, consternation, and anxiety into our hearts. If something or someone can tear us from the firm grip of the hand of Christ, then we should have great fear. On the other hand, properly understood, I don't think that the author is in any way saying that we can lose our salvation, but rather he's giving us a uh, pastoral warning. And in fact, it's a pastoral warning that we can say is steeped in the very teaching of Christ himself, Not simply from the vantage point that, of course, Christ inspires all of the word of God through the Holy Spirit. We, of course, believe and affirm that. But rather, the author is echoing the very words of Christ himself and his teaching from the Gospels on a very similar point. Moreover, we want to note that what the author is doing here is he's speaking from the vantage point of the Christian life, not from the vantage point of God's sovereign decree of election, namely that God might scratch you off uh, the list of salvation and blot your name out of the book of life. He's not saying that at all. Rather, he's speaking to his church. He's speaking to the congregation. He's speaking to a group of people that are contemplating leaving the Christian faith, going back to Judaism, both because they were experiencing persecution, because they embraced the gospel, they embraced faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also because there was a sense in which They were uncomfortable theologically with where they were, and they wanted to return to what they knew. They wanted to return to the old ways. And so they wanted to turn back, but the author gives them a pastoral warning, and he says, hang on, to turn back is no minor matter. Plain and simple, he says, in no uncertain terms, it's apostasy. And so he's giving his recipients a warning. But it's from the pastoral vantage point, not from the bird's eye view that God has of who is and who is not saved. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to listen. We want to, we want to give a careful attention to the author's warning so that we can understand what he's saying, but that so we can also understand how he's echoing Christ's teaching. And in so doing, first and foremost, I think what we will hear is the tremendous blessing that we have in the gospel and the salvation that we have in Christ, and that ultimately really nothing can ever take us out of Christ's hands. But conversely, I think what we can also hear is the need for us to cling and to hold fast to Christ. You know, one of the things that I've done over the years as I've been a father is that in various circumstances, my children have been scared for one reason or another. Often it's the case it might be in the middle of the night when they have a dream or a bad dream or a night terror, or it might be when they they narrowly escape some sort of uh, danger or injury, or perhaps even when they do get injured, those have been the times when my children have hung on to me the hardest, where they put a death grip around my neck and hang on for dear life. There's a sense in which what the author of Hebrews is saying is he's saying, hold fast to Christ. Hang on. Don't let go. But at the same time, assure your own heart in the face of fear and temptation that Christ will never let you go. So let's go and first look at two things within this particular passage of Scripture. First, we want to get a good understanding as to what the warning is. How is it that the author of Hebrews is warning his recipients? And then secondly, we want to see how the author's teaching uh, dovetails, or we could say echoes or resonates with the teaching of Christ himself on this very subject. So let's first give our attention to the warning. On the heels of exhorting his recipients unto greater maturity in Christ and his gospel, the author warns his recipients of the opposite danger, the danger of apostasy. He says in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and following, he says, "...it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt." Now, notice the different ways that the author describes the people that he has in view. They've been once enlightened. In other words, imagine they're in a relative state of darkness, but now they're in a state of light. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in some sense in the Holy Spirit. He says that they've tasted the goodness of the word of God as well as he describes them as having tasted the power of the age to come, which is another way of saying the Holy Spirit is the power by which God is creating the new heavens and the new earth so that there is some sense in which they have tasted the new creation itself. Now, as former Jewish Christians, as former Jewish Christians, I believe... I'm sorry, as former Jews, I should say, and now as Christians, I believe that the original audience would have heard all of these points of description against the backdrop of the Old Testament exodus. They would have heard the Old Testament exodus, and they would have associated all of these points of description with that significant event. And we might say, well, why would they associate the Old Testament exodus with all of these things? And I can illustrate this point in the following way. If I told you hot dogs, and if I said uh, red, white, and blue, if I said fireworks, streamers, bunting, I suspect all of us would most likely think 4th of July. I don't have to really even mention the holiday name. I can just mention all of those things that are associated with it, and we automatically end up on the same page, mentally speaking. Well, what the author has done here is he has mentioned a number of things that would automatically bring a former Jew's mind back to the Exodus because like the 4th of July is so formative for our own American cultural consciousness, we could say that the Exodus is equally, if not even more formative for the Jewish mindset. If we like to celebrate the 4th of July as being a definitive moment in our nation's history, well then the Exodus is perhaps the most defining moment for the nation of Israel. And so the author of Hebrews gives them a number of things to invoke that memory. Remember on the Exodus, God led that generation by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The fire that would have enlightened the Israelites, that would have shown the light of the presence of God upon the people as he led them on the Exodus. What do we read of in Psalm 105, verse 39? He spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light by night. They were enlightened. On the Exodus, God gave his people manna from heaven, by which we can say, using the language of Hebrews 6, that they tasted the heavenly gift Psalm 78, verse 24, he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. God placed his Holy Spirit in the midst of Israel as a nation, which other portions of God's scripture call God's gift. But according to the prophet Hosea, chapter two, verses four and five, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant, that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. So God places his spirit in Israel's midst during the Exodus. And of course, the Exodus generation was the regular recipient of the word of God. They heard God thunder from Sinai. They heard God speak out from his tabernacle, Moses delivers the word of God so that they could regularly hear of the blessings of the salvation that comes only from the one true living God. And so when the author of Hebrews says they've been once enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the goodness of the word to come, they've tasted the powers of the age to come, he is using the backdrop of the Old Testament Exodus to set the stage for showing why and how the recipients of his letter should not turn back to go into slavery or into Egypt. He says he's encouraging his readers to think back to that generation and to think to that generation's apostasy when they rebelled against God, and he's encouraging them, don't repeat the error of that first exodus generation, when they refused to enter into the promised land, when they lacked faith in the gospel promises of God. The apostle Paul elsewhere reaches back, and talks about the Exodus generation in a very similar manner when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, that he said that we look back upon that, he says, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, how many of us have ever looked at the Old Testament and we read those Exodus narratives and we think, what is wrong with those people? Why are they constantly sinning? Why are they rebelling? Why won't they simply trust in the word of God? Look at how much he's providing for them. Look at how he is caring for them. Look how he delivered them out of slavery. And yet what do they desire to do but to return back to the flesh pots of Egypt, to go back to where they had leeks and onions, is what the Exodus narrative tells us. And so we scratch our heads in disbelief and befuddlement and we say, how, how could they want to do that? But what Paul is saying when he says that that generation is an example for us, that we might not desire the same evil as they did, he's saying, look in the mirror. Their sinfulness is a window upon the sinfulness of our own hearts. Don't engage in the same type of sin as they did And wander off and rebel against God. Because guess what? The times may change. It may be Old Testament Israel. We're New Testament Christians. This was thousands of years ago. Uh, Now we are many, many generations removed. They had dirt. We have technology. Uh, They had scribes. We have iPhones. But the human heart never changes. The same sinful human heart's that abandoned the promises of God in those days are the same types of sinful hearts that we have. The human condition does not change. Except now what the author is saying is he's making the same point. He's saying, look back at that generation. Learn from what they've done. Look to see how they were enlightened, how they tasted the good word of God, how they experienced the Holy Spirit and the blessings of redemption. But the consequence here is not merely forfeiting the promised land. The consequence is is it's forfeiting eternal life. Forfeiting eternal life. Those who turn away from Christ, the author is saying, reject the only means of salvation. This is why he says in verse 6, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now let's make sure we understand what the author is saying here. This isn't a question of somebody sinning against Christ, denying Christ, and then wanting to repent and to come back to Christ, but Christ says, no, sorry, You denied me, you're out. The the, the author here is not describing somebody like the Apostle Peter. When Peter denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times. It was a grievous sin. It was a lack of courage. It was a lack of faith. But it wasn't apostasy. And we know this because all it took was a glance from Christ, a single glance from Christ. And it poured bitter regret into Peter's heart to where he ran away weeping for his sin, weeping. Rather, this is about a person who has no desire for Christ. Whatsoever, And thus, this is why the author says it's impossible to restore them again unto repentance. Now, at first glance, these words may seem to give all of the signs that, well, I don't know, it sounds kind of like somebody can lose their salvation. But this is where, secondly, I think we have to turn to Christ's teaching to see that what the author is echoing here is simply the teaching of Jesus himself. So let's go to this second point, which is Christ's teaching. Among the many parables that Christ taught the crowds, we find the parable of the sower. A parable I think and hope many of us are familiar with. The sower, of course, in Luke chapter 8, goes out and he casts his seed upon the ground. And there's some of the seed that fell on the path, and it's trampled underfoot, and the birds come along, and they eat it, according to Luke 8.5. There's some seed that falls upon the rocks, and as it grew, it withered in the hot sun because there was no moisture for it. it wasn't capable of you know, digging down into the earth and, and, and rooting itself into the ground. There's a third type of seed that that falls among the thorns. And of course, the thorns come in and they choke out the seed as the seed sprouts and it tries to grow. But then in verse 8 of Luke chapter 8, Jesus speaks of some of the seed that falls upon the good ground. And it grows, it takes root, and it produces fruit a hundredfold, Jesus says. Now, the disciples were naturally curious, and so they wanted to know the meaning of the parable. And so Jesus explained it to them. He removed the veil of the parable's ambiguity, and he shone the light of truth upon it so that they could understand its full significance. And he said that the seed that the sower casts upon the earth is the word of God. It's the gospel of Jesus. But then he says about the seed along the path in Luke chapter 8, verse 12, he says, the ones along the path are those that have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So there's some that the gospel falls upon them and the devil comes and takes it away. The second, those seeds of the gospel that fall upon the rocks, the word of God that falls upon the rocks, he says in verse 13, those are some, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. So there's some who receive the word of God only temporarily. But notice the important statement that Jesus says is they have no root. Then he says that for the seed of the word of God that falls among the thorns, Luke eight fourteen, he says, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. In other words, As they make their estimation of the value of the gospel, they find other things in this world more appealing, more beneficial, more important. But then he says in verse 15 of Luke 8, as for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and they bear fruit with patience. So, notice the different ways in which the Word of God goes out and the different types of people receive it. But here's the point of the parable that Jesus never, ever discusses. He never says, Who prepares the good soil? He never talks about anybody coming along and tilling the soil. And in fact, you know, one of the things that my son has been doing this summer, uh, you know, periodically, is kind of like a part-time job for him, is, is working on a farm. And so he's been harvesting corn, bagging corn. Uh, he's been harvesting watermelons, which he says is kind of fun, until he threw one and missed. <laughs> and it cracked the watermelon. But he said the, the, the owner was kind enough to say, it's all right, we can cut this one up and we can eat this one. You know, so, uh, you know, so he's learning to do that. But one of the things that he was says is like, as we were on our way to general assembly, he's like, yep, that's field corn and that's sweet corn over there. And I'm like, how do you know that, son? He says, because you see the field corn, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's packed in too tight. You got to harvest that with a machine. He says the sweet corn, on the other hand, you can walk in between it because you got to take it off and you got to harvest it, you know, by hand. I'm pretty impressed. I'm like, I don't know anything. It just looks like corn to me, right? But the point is, is that in order for that corn to grow, you've got to prepare the soil. You've got to put in fertilizer. You've got to till it. You've got to remove the rocks. You've got to create furrows so that when you plant the seed, you know that it's going to grow well. Jesus never talks about who tills the soil who prepares it so that it produces a crop a hundredfold. Now listen carefully. Keep this parable in the back of your mind, the different types of soil and how some of it is fruitful and productive and the other three types of soil are not. The path, the the rocks, uh, and the thorny soil. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter six, verses seven and eight. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Notice that the author here is using the same parable, if you will, of the planted seed and the crop and the thorns and the rain planting and harvesting seed. And so what he's doing here is the author is echoing Christ's parable even by mentioning all of these things, especially the thorns and the thistles. The point of Christ's parable and the author's similar illustration and warning is this. Not everyone receives the word of God to their blessing. You have to hear the message and you have to believe in it. You cannot turn away from Christ, whether as a non-Christian or as a professing believer. That does not fit in Christ's parable with the good soil. So all who participate in the life of the church, everyone who gathers to hear the word of God, think analogously of Old Testament Exodus generation Israel, as they receive all of the blessings, not everyone who participated in those blessings and the reception of God's grace received it unto their salvation. Some did not. Just as when we gather together in the church, the author looks out upon his congregation and he says, not everyone receives the word of God to their blessing. When he says that they've been once enlightened, there are some who experience and they know the light of God's truth. They recognize the word of God as true. They can see the goodness and the wisdom therein. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They hear the message of the good news. They hear of the forgiveness of sins that comes comes only through Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which they have shared in the gift of the Holy Spirit in that They not only hear the message of the preaching of the word of God, which goes out in the power of the spirit, but they also are able to benefit from the fruit of the spirit that is poured out upon the church as they come into the church and people love them, care for them, and, you know, give them and provide for their needs. They share love with them, patience with them, joy with them, and so they've tasted in a sense the new creation itself, as they experience the ethics of the new heavens and the new earth. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God as they learn of God's wisdom, his might, and his glory. They've tasted the powers of the age to come because they've tasted, in a sense, heaven itself. But this doesn't automatically mean that they've trusted Christ for their salvation. In other words, what the author is describing here is what Christ describes when he speaks of the seed that is cast along the path, the seed that is cast among the rocks, the seed that is surrounded and choked out by the thorns and thistles. What then ensures that we do not find ourselves among the path or the rocks or the thorns or the thistles? Well, as I said, Christ never explains in his parable this point But it's only the good soil that serves as suitable ground so that the seed of the gospel grows and produces great fruit. I think this is the point that the author is saying. He's saying, don't turn away. Seek the work of Christ to cultivate and to till the fallow ground of your heart. Turn to Christ. He's the only one that can plow the soil of your life. He can remove your sin hard and hard and make the soil of your life receptive to the word of God. In the words of John Owen, 17th century, Prince of Puritans, as he's called, he says, we will not know the power of grace until we feel the power of testing. We must be tried to realize the glory of being preserved. So in other words, what the author is saying here, what John Owen is saying, what Christ is saying, is he's saying, seek me. Seek me to till the ground of your heart, to make your life receptive to the gospel of Christ, because in so doing, I will produce the fruit of holiness in your life. I will produce the fruit of perseverance in your life so that not only will you not let go of me, but most importantly, I will not let go of you. But when we feel the pool of sin and even the temptation of turning away, this is when we have to set aside the reliance upon our own power and our own efforts to try to hold on to Christ. And we have to rest peacefully in his hands, knowing that he holds on to us. Because he's the one who teaches us and removes our ignorance. He's the only one that can subdue our sinful desires. He removes the stones of sin in our lives and he makes the soil of our lives fertile. He sends the rain of his grace to produce the crop of good works, the fruit of his spirit. In other words, he produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And what the author is essentially saying here is he's saying, don't turn away, hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. And so our prayer should be that God would preserve us by Christ through the power of His Spirit and that we would hear the warning, that we would heed the warning. The author is saying the reality of of hell is, is present. Flee from it. Cling to Christ through His word of grace in the gospel. Cling to Christ through the visible word of the sacraments. Cling to Christ in prayer that we would plead His grace. Or to borrow Paul's words from Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, ultimately, what the author is saying here is he's saying, Hold fast to our head, to Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Cling fast to Christ and flee apostasy. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you are faithful. We recognize, O Lord, that there are many who do not receive your word unto salvation. Sometimes the enemy comes along and sweeps it away. Other times, O Lord, People receive it with joy, but having no root in themselves, the truth of the gospel withers in their life. And still, yet others, O Lord, who receive it, but the thorns and the thistles of this life, the cares and the concerns and pleasures of this world choke it out. O Lord, let us not fall into those categories. But by your grace, O Lord, we pray that you would till the fallow ground of our hearts and lives, that you would plant the seeds of your word deep within our hearts, that if we do face the temptation of turning away, that we would not do so, that you would convince us that you are the only shelter in whom we can find eternal life. In the face of doubts, O Lord, fill our hearts with confidence. In the face of severe temptation, O Lord, grant unto us a desire to love you more than our sin. In the face, O Lord, of a difficult providence, we pray that you would instill in our hearts the knowledge that you are our loving Father who has given us your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit to preserve and to protect us no matter what befalls us. Beneath the weight of crushing guilt and the burden of our sin, we pray that you would grant unto us a greater faith that we might turn to Christ and place our burdens upon his shoulders and that you would give unto us the freedom and privileges as your adopted sons to enter boldly into your presence that we might plead the righteousness, satisfaction, and holiness of Christ. Oh, Father, hold us in Christ. Keep us far from temptation and sin. And we pray, oh Lord, that you would fill our hearts with joy and an assurance knowing that your Son will never let go from, let go of us, that neither death nor life nor angels nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of this creation can separate us from your love in Jesus Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.